Okay, so a couple comments. We're going to talk about the exam today. Uh, we're going to do some new material today as well. Um, a couple announcements. First of all is I'm going to be on leave for the next month. So uh, Dr. Todd Sauke is going to be filling in for me. He teaches two of the other Physics 50 sections right now. Um, his contact information is there. He'll be giving that information out as well in his office hours at the beginning of class on Monday. Um, so please direct all comments over the next month to him. Um, I'll still occasionally browse the discussion board and try to lend helpful insight, but I'm going to be busy taking care of a new baby, so I'm not going to have very much time, or at least uh, time to reliably uh, answer all the emails and questions that, that typically come up. Thank you. Thank you. I have been rewarded with lack of sleep, <laughs> so, but it's, it's fun. Um, Okay, so it's not going to affect, it shouldn't affect anything with the class schedule. I've gone over with him what we'll be covering every day. Um, so it'll be the same schedule that you have in your green sheet that I passed out at the beginning of the semester. Uh, the second exam will be next month while I'm gone. I'm writing the exam. I'm grading the exam. So it'll be the same format content as this exam. I will make the time to post a uh, practice exam for you, just like I did for this, about a week before the exam. So you'll have the same type of preparation for it. Um, so, any questions about that, Tim? The homework has already been, I've already assigned all the homework for the rest of the year, so every week you'll be getting the new uh, assignment on Mastering Physics, and that's, it, yeah, it'll be the same as if I were teaching the class. So, any other questions? Yeah? Uh, no, he's going to use his own lecture notes. So I, there won't be the notes posted online. There won't be the podcast of the class. So if you want, I can give you my lecture notes from the next month of class. Um, but he's not going to use them in class. You want me to just post them online? Let me. Okay. It will, but I gave him a copy of the test, so he knows what's on it. He's not going to. He'll have covered all the material that will be on the test. Put it that way. Okay. So. Um, he, he's aware of that, that possible issue. I will post the lecture notes from the next set of, the next month of content from the last time I taught the course. Okay, so there might be references in the lecture notes to the second midterm or first midterm, things like that that are relevant from two years ago. Okay, but I'm not going to update them since I'm not going to be presenting them. Does that make sense? Okay, so. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the midterm. These are the scores. These are the adjusted scores. So there's a box that says your raw score. That's just how many points you got. That means nothing um, other than I use that to figure out the curve. Right? And so the curve gives you an adjusted score. That's the one that your grade is based on. And so it's a very straightforward grading scale. Uh, 97 and above is an A+. 93 to 97 is an A. 90 to 93 is an A-. minus. And likewise, the Bs are in the 80s, and the 70s are the Cs. The uh, 60s are the Ds. This is the way the scoring down, broke down. Uh, we had nine students get A's, um, 10 students get B's, eight students get C's, and then about a third of the class um, got what would be considered, well, the D's aren't failing grades, so you'd have to take Physics 50 over again if that was your final grade for the year. A couple things to keep in mind. First is, these are just the midterm scores, right? So that's not what your letter grade is going to be based off of. It's, it's midterms, homework, and final exam. Um, the homework scores, I haven't factored in yet. 
I intended to put those into the Blackboard system, so when you go online to check your grade, you've got homework and midterm scores. Two problems with that. The first is the homework scores keep changing, because every time you complete a problem, it updates your homework score. So there's no way I can keep it up to date. Um, so I was just going to type in the homework scores after the first midterm. And I went to do that yesterday, and Mastering Physics was offline for me. I don't know whether it's my account or what. I called con technical support. But I haven't been able to get in and get your homework grades to include them um, in your overall grade that you see when you go into uh, the class website. Okay, So the class website will currently list one grade for you, which is your midterm grade. And based on that, it tells you what your current class grade is. If you want to actually get a better representation of what you're doing in the class, average your one midterm with your homework scores. Okay, And that'll give you an idea of what your grade is. And as we have more and more midterms, then you can average them with the homework scores as well. Questions? Well, yeah, so homework and the midterms all average equally. So if we've had two midterms and one home, I mean, you've got the homework, you count the homework as a third, and each midterm is a third. You just average those scores. Most people, well, there's opportunity to score very well in the homework. A lot of people have averages that are over 100. I know not everyone does, but um, so you have the opportunity to make up some ground. Also, remember the final exam can improve your midterm grades. If you score better on the final exam than you scored in the first midterm, I won't count your first midterm. I'll count your final exam instead. Tanara? So if you pass every exam, then you don't have to punch? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if you've got an A going into the final and you don't take the final, you have an A in the class. Yeah. So I don't care whether you prove to me you can do the material throughout the semester or whether you prove to me you can do it at the end of the semester. If you can do the material in the class and, and demonstrate that to me, that's what your grade will be based off of. Yeah. Yeah, the final doesn't count other than to improve upon your midterm grades. Chris, you have a question? Okay. Right, okay, so you can improve upon this, um, but if you are one of the people who scored below here, um, you might want to think about changes you can make to your study habits, to um, whatever the way you approach the class so that you're not in the same situation after the second midterm, right? Okay, we'll go over, um, so the test, I posted the solutions online. You can log into the website in the little area that has the uh, practice exams. I also posted the solutions to the actual exam. So you can view these there. I'm not going to go over every problem, but I'll point out the ones that people had uh, the most trouble with. A lot of people had problems with number three. A policeman driving south is measuring the speed of someone driving north. And this is a relative velocity problem. So we have with respect to the ground is 60 miles per hour south. Ground miles per hour north, and we're looking for the velocity of the driver with respect to the policeman. So the velocity of the driver with respect to the policeman is the velocity of the driver with respect to the ground plus the velocity of the ground with respect to the policeman, which isn't exactly what this is. If the policeman is driving 60 miles per hour south, that means the ground is going 60 miles per hour north relative to the policeman. So let me call this negative and this positive. That was 
radar gun is going to measure a faster speed, right? Because it's measuring oncoming traffic. That was the most common problem people had on the first page. Um, and so if you have questions that aren't the ones that I'm going over, I'm going to suggest you come to my office hours after class, um, and I, I'd be happy to go over the full test uh, there where we have more time. The second page, um, the most common problem people had was number 10. For a satellite in circular orbit around the Earth, which is true. So we hear circular orbit. I mentioned circular, when things move in circles, we should immediately think the acceleration has a radial component that's v squared over r. Now if it's a circle, that means the radius is constant. The radius of curvature of this path is constant. That's what a circle is. So if the radius is constant, and it's moving in a circular path, then we can think about what forces act on it. Here's a satellite. Gravity is pulling it in. That's the only force acting on it. So the force of gravity is mass times acceleration. And so the force of gravity isn't changing as it moves around at a constant distance from the Earth. So if this is constant, and this is constant, and this is constant, then v squared has to be constant as well. Okay, so either it has to have constant velocity or its speed must be constant. And if we think about this, um, its velocity is not only how fast it's going, but also what direction. And the direction is changing. Right? Here it might be going to the left, and down here it's going to the right. So the velocity isn't constant. But the magnitude of that is its speed, and that has to be constant. If the speed is constant, then v squared is constant, and this equation can be satisfied. How many people recognize these graphs? Okay, that's from the homework. The question, I wrote up my own question, but it was based on the homework question. Okay, so during which trials is the object's velocity constant? Constant velocity means the slope of the position versus time is, is constant. That means it's linear, it's a line. So which of these are lines, A, C, and D? You had to have all three of those to get any credit for that problem. Uh, during which trial does the object have the greatest average velocity? So average velocity is given by the slope of the line from the starting point to the ending point. So you could connect the line here, and the average velocity is the slope of that line. And that's steeper than either trial A or D. So trial B has the greatest average velocity. Um, during which trial or trials is the object stopped? Or does it come to a stop? A stop means it's not moving, right? Its velocity is given by the slope of this curve. So if it's not moving, the slope of that curve should be what? Zero. Okay, so this doesn't have a slope of zero. This one has a slope of zero right at the very beginning. Um, but during the rest of the curve, it's always positive. This one, the slope is always zero. This one, the slope is always so trial C is the answer there. At which, point, at which trial does it move forwards at some point? So moving forwards means a 
positive velocity. Positive velocity means a slope, trial A or B. A lot of people assumed that a point that was forward of x equals 0 meant it was moving forward. Um, but in trial B, we have the object starting here and it's moving backwards. So even though it starts above the origin, that doesn't mean it's moving forward if its position is decreasing. And during which trials does the object move backwards at some point? It has to be a, a curve that has a negative slope at some point, and trial D is the only one that has, has that. Okay, as far as labeling these points, um, there wasn't too much problem with that except for points L and M. Points L and M were the point where the object has its minimum speed and the point where it has its maximum speed. And the most common mistake people made was not, not putting those points on the graph. Um, the object, at some point, at every point in these four trials, the object has some speed. Right? Here it's zero, here it's some positive value, here it's moving negative. It has some speed, and so there has to be some point where it's a maximum and some point where it's a minimum. So it's a minimum when it's zero. Trial C has the position being constant, meaning it's not moving. Speed is or you could also argue that right here in trial B, slope of this curve is zero. So it has zero speed. And the point where it has the maximum can be up at this point where the slope is very steep. So we're asking for where is the slope the minimum and where is the slope the maximum. So those were each worth one point. You had to get them exactly right in order to get the point. And there was one problem that involved doing your own calculations. Okay, so this car drives off the parking garage. If it's driving too slowly, well, what we want is for the car to land right here on this deck. But if it's driving too slowly, it'll hit below that point and either land on a floor below or crash into the parking structure down here or maybe even crash into the ground if it's going really slowly. If it's going too fast, then by the time it gets to this second parking garage, it's not going to have fallen far enough. And so the roof of the car will hit the top of the structure. Okay, so if you said those two things, you got full credit here. Um, the most common, well, the most problematic mistake people made is they said if you drive too fast, it's going to land on the top or fly over. And that's not the case. The car starts going horizontally and gravity pulls it down. At no point is it going up. So there's no way, regardless of how fast it goes, that it's going to go up and over the second parking structure. Well, it could go so fast that the amount that it drops is less than the radius of the tire, in which case it might, the tire might hit and it might bounce up. But it's still going to have dropped. Okay, so um, part B, in terms of the initial speed, and that was critical, a lot of people didn't phrase their answer in terms of V naught. If you didn't do that, you, I think you only got like one, one point. Um, how long will it take the car to cross the 10 meter gap? So what we need to do is we need to recognize we're relating a position to a time. So we have this equation with constant acceleration. You got one point for recognizing you needed to use that equation. 
the initial velocity in the x direction is v naught. It's however fast the car is driving because it's driving horizontally. So you got a point for recognizing that and that the acceleration is zero. Okay, in the x direction, there's no acceleration. The only acceleration is due to gravity, and that points down in the y direction. So one point for this, one point for these uh, two values, one point for solving for the time, and one point for having the right units. Okay, we have a distance of 10 meters, so the distance that we plug in for x of t minus x naught has to be 10 meters. If you just plugged in 10, that's not good enough. That's not meaningful. It had to have the meters on it. Okay. So this is the time. It might look funny that it has units of meters. It doesn't. The 10 has units of meters. The v naught we haven't plugged in yet. But if we plug in a velocity that's in meters per second, then this expression will give me a number of seconds. If we plug in a velocity that's in meters per hour, this expression will give me a time in hours. Right? So we only put the units on the numbers that they represent. So we have a time. Using that time, how far has the car fallen when it reaches the second structure? Okay, so when it reaches the second structure, it's, it's this, this length of time has elapsed. So what we need to do is relate how far it falls to a time. So again, it's a displacement versus time. So it's the same form of the equation, this time in the y direction, since we're dealing with how far it fell. And because it's in the y direction, the initial velocity is zero, and the acceleration is g, and points down. Okay, so you get one point for the equation, one point for recognizing the right terms to plug in for the equation. When you plug in t down here, you get one point for getting this expression, and one point for having the right units on it. Okay, so if you evaluate this, g is in meters per second squared, and you have meters squared, you get units of meters cubed per second squared. That looks really weird, but again, if you plug in a velocity that's in meters per second here, you'll get the units canceling out and giving you meters. Okay, so what you can do with this is if you know how far it falls, you can figure out if it lands in the right place. And that's what we're doing in part D and E. So in part D, we're saying, um, what's the minimum speed? So if the speed is really slow, it's going to fall very far. Right? This denominator gets smaller, the distance it falls gets greater. And we want to say that it, it can fall no further than three meters. That's how far it is from where it started to where it's supposed to land. So we set the distance it falls to three meters, and we solve for that velocity. We should get 12.8 meters per second. Tim? We'll get to that in part E. It doesn't matter here. If the car is one and a half meters high, it doesn't affect the fact that the whole thing has to drop three meters to land here. The top of the car will be, if it falls three meters, the top of the car will be below the, the ceiling. And it will fit. Yeah, and then you wouldn't land on this deck. You would, you would hit, you would land right here, or you would hit right here. And the task was to land on this disk this deck of the parking structure, not here. Okay, so you got two points for this, saying that it has to fall three meters, that constraint. You got one point 
for setting, basically setting that equal to the answer you had in part D, and one point for evaluating that. It works out to 12.8 meters per second. So that's, that's, a that's a reasonable velocity. You could drive a car that fast. So that's the minimum speed you have to drive. Uh, the maximum speed we get in the same manner, it's just that if you're driving really fast, in part A, we said if you drive too fast, the roof of the car will hit the ceiling of the parking deck. So you need to fall far enough that the roof of the car is below the ceiling. So if the, if the car is one and a half meters high, it has to fall at least one and a half meters in order for it to go underneath this, this ceiling. So it has to fall at least one and a half meters. So you get two points for recognizing that. And then you get one point, again, for setting that equal to your expression for how far it fell, and one point for solving that. And it was 18 meters per second. So what you should get is that the maximum velocity is greater than the minimum velocity. A lot of people actually got this value smaller than that value, which, which would either suggest the stunt's impossible or that you have a mistake somewhere. So I, point, I tried to point that out um, when that occurred. Okay, so that's the test. If you have any questions about the grading, um, you can see me after class. Um, if you should check that I've added your score up correctly. I double check these things, but it's up to you to triple check. If there's any clerical errors or anything like that, um, you can see me and it's easy for me to make those changes now. Okay, so when we left, uh, left off of new material last week, we were talking about free body diagrams and using them to solve problems. So free body diagrams we use when there's forces involved in a problem. And so today we're going to do a couple examples using free body diagrams and this problem solving strategy to figure out how to move. And we're gonna look at uh, two things in particular. One is objects that aren't moving, that are in equilibrium, and how we can use free body diagrams to tell us something about the forces acting on them. And we're going to talk about friction, which is one of the very common forces that we have to deal with when we're doing free body diagrams. So this slide is from last time. I just put it up there as a reminder. Um, if we want to talk about objects, a lot of objects that we deal with aren't moving. So my computer, the ruler, all sorts of things are in equilibrium. It means they're, they're not accelerating. And quite frequently, that means they're at rest. They could be moving with a constant velocity. You might have a spacecraft, say a Viking 1, leaving the solar system, moving at a constant velocity, no forces are acting on it. It's in equilibrium, even though it's moving. For most things that we deal with, equilibrium means it's at rest. And what that means is there's no net force acting on it. So there's no force in the x direction. There's no net force in the y direction. If there's things that push it in the x direction, they all have to be balanced. The net force, the total forces acting in the x direction have to add up to be zero. Likewise in the y direction. So in lab this week, you're doing experiments, or I guess last week, where you had a force table, you were setting up uh, an equilibrium condition there. Uh, let's look at a couple examples of things in equilibrium. Here's a car engine hanging from a chain. And 
this ring right here attaches to two chains. One is hanging from the ceiling at an angle, and one is horizontal. One thing we might want to figure out is what is the tension in each of these chains? If I hang too much weight on this, which chain would be the first one to break, for example? Um, and we can do that problem by recognizing that this system's in equilibrium. Right? It's, it's just sitting there. There's no acceleration. So we can pick an object like, like this ring. That ring is a very nice object to pick because if we want to talk about the forces acting or the tension in each of these chains, that tension produces forces that act on the ring. So using the ring as our object, we'll be able to talk about the forces that act on it and relate those back to what we're trying to understand, the tension in the, in the chain. Okay, so the engine has a mass m. So if I look at my ring, say that's my free body that I draw my diagram of, where does the mass of the engine come into play? Yeah, it's, it's not pulling on the ring directly, right? It's pulling on the chain, and the chain is pulling on the ring. Okay, if I wanted, I could draw my engine. with force of gravity pulling it down and the tension in chain one, T1, pulling it up. And that's in equilibrium. The engine's not going anywhere. So I know that the forces have to balance. They have to add up to be zero. So I could say that if this is the positive y direction, this is the positive x direction, I can say um, some of the forces in y is T1, minus mg and Newton's second law says that has to equal ma but in equilibrium there's no acceleration so the tension in this chain say it has to equal the weight of the weight of the engine that might have been obvious to you right if it wasn't there will be cases where we have more complex diagrams where we'll start with a free body object free body diagram of one object, we'll use that to, to then know something more about another object we're considering. Okay, so here we have a chain, chain one pulling down in this ring. It pulls down with tension T1, and now I know that T1 is just the weight of the, the, weight of the uh, engine. T2 pulls horizontally, and T3 pulls at an angle of 60 degrees. And I have to be careful that I represent the angle correctly. They tell me it's 60 degrees with respect to the ceiling. And that's not the angle that I drew here. I drew the angle with respect to the horizontal. But a little bit of geometry can convince me that these are alternate interior angles and that they're the same value. Okay? If I had drawn that, that would be 30 degrees. So I just have to make sure that the angles I draw on my diagram are labeled correctly not be the same as those given in the problem. Okay, so now what I want to do is I want to find out what T2 and T3 are. 
there's only one particular value for those tensions that will balance the weight. The more weight I put on here, the greater the tension in these, these cables has to be. So for this amount of weight, there must be some particular value. So let me go back to the problem solving strategy. We've identified our object of interest, the ring. We've drawn a free body diagram. We want to add up all the forces in x and y. But right now, we've got one force that's not pointing in x or y. So what do we do? We're going to break it into components. There's T3x, which is going to be T3 times cosine of 60 degrees. And there's T3y, which is T3 sine 60. So if I have the components, I need the original vector. I'll use the components instead. So add up all the forces in x and y. Uh, so in x, the sum of the forces, I've got T3 cosine 60 pointing to the right. I've got T2 pointing to the left, so that's in the minus x direction. So I have to label it minus T2. And what do those forces have to add up to be? They have to be 0. So Newton's second law tells us they add up to be equal to ma. And because it's in equilibrium, that acceleration is 0. I can do the same thing in y where I have uh, T3 sine 60 minus T1. So I'm using F equals MA, where the acceleration is 0. And now I need to solve for the quantities of interest. Right, so um, I know, for example, that T1 is equal to mg. And this gives me three equations with three unknowns, t1, t2, and t3. Okay, so I've already got the solution for t1. I can solve t3 by putting the t1 on the other side. And I know that t1 is equal to mg. I'll divide both sides by 60 degrees, or by sine of 60 degrees. And I get a value for T3, mg over sine 60 degrees. And now I can solve this one for T2. Right, I can just say. Um, so bring T2 to this side, I get T2 equals T3 cosine 60. And I can plug in my value for T3. And if I want, I can write this as the cotangent of 60 degrees. 
I did it right here. When the engine pulls down with the weight mg, tension has to hold it up with that force T1. So I said those two forces had to balance. That gave me T1 equals mg. So I did that sort of before I started anything else. So which of these, if I keep increasing the weight, then all three forces are going to keep increasing. Which one of these is the largest? It's not T1. Sine, sine of 60 is a number less than 0, or less than 1. Let's see if I can. Uh, sine of 60 is 1 half. Or 0.866, sorry. And cotangent of 60 is 0.577. Okay, so T3, if I evaluate this, is 1.15 times mg. So why is it that there's more tension in this chain than there is in this one? This is the one that's holding up the engine, right? Yeah, sorry. So can we make an argument as to why, if we keep increasing the mass of this chain, this one will break first? Yeah, there's, there's two chains pulling in this. So tension one, the weight of the mass, the weight of the engine is pulling directly on chain one. So however much the engine weighs, that's how much tension will be here. Um, this, if this chain two were not here, the whole thing would swing down, right? So this is holding it. So there's some tension here to, to pull it towards the wall. And tension three, the vertical component, has to be enough to balance the weight of the engine. So the vertical component of T3 supports the weight of the engine. The horizontal component balances this. Okay, so whereas tension one, chain one, only needs to support the weight of the engine, chain, two, chain three needs to support the weight of the engine and needs to balance this. So it's got additional forces acting on it. Any questions, Tim? T3. Let's do one more example. Um, this is a classic example. We're going to go over variations of this problem probably four or five times in class and probably just as many times in the homework. And you're going to see a variation of this problem on at least one of the midterms and the final coming up. Okay? It's called Atwood's machine. I don't know who Atwood was, but I know that this is called Atwood's machine. Essentially, it's an elevator. Okay. It's a pulley with two masses, one on either side. And those masses might not be the same. So we use little m for this and big M for that. If they're the same, what do we expect this elevator to do? Stay there, Stay there right? 
Um, if this one is bigger than this, what do we expect to happen? Yeah, this will go down and this one will go up. And likewise, if this one's bigger than that, we expect it to, be, to do that. So there's all sorts of ways we can study this machine. We can use conservation of energy, which is chapter 6. We can use um, Newton's laws, which is what we're doing now. So we'll do this uh, using Newton's laws. We'll ask, um, what will be the acceleration of this system if these masses aren't the same? So there's two objects here. So there's two different things we can draw free body diagrams of. Okay, this is a problem involving forces, right? Gravity is what's pulling on these things. We're trying to find an acceleration. We're relating forces and acceleration, so that's Newton's laws. And we use free body diagrams anytime we have forces in the problem. Okay, so there's two objects. We'll see that I actually have to draw a diagram for both. Let's start. Let's just pick one object. Let's pick this one on the left. Let's draw a free body diagram for it. Let's see if we can use that to figure out the acceleration. What forces act on this? Gravity. And I have to be careful to label the mass as little m, because I'll use big M for the other object. Anything else? Tension pointing up. So I'll call that for the moment T1. Okay, so my problem solving strategy says I draw this free body diagram. I need a coordinate system. I can add up the forces. In this case, they're all along Y. Set them equal to the mass times acceleration. I'm trying to find the acceleration. But I don't know the tension. It's tempting to say the tension equals the weight, like we had in the last problem. Why is that not right here? Yeah, it, it, that's only true if the system's in equilibrium. If the system's in equilibrium, the acceleration is zero, and these have to equal each other. If the system's accelerating, it may be that Let's say it's accelerating down. What that means is gravity's pulling down harder than tension's pulling up. So they may not be balanced. Okay, so I don't know what T1 is. So if I don't know, if I don't have enough information to solve the problem, I have to draw another free body diagram. So there's another part of the problem that I've ignored till now, and it's this other mass. And it makes sense that I should have to include this, right? The size of this mass directly affects what the acceleration of this one will be. Let me draw that free body diagram. It looks the same. My labels are a little different. It has its weight pulling it down, which I'm going to use capital M G to represent. It has a tension pulling it up, T2. What do we know about T1 and T2? They're equal. Okay, That's a tension in the same rope. So the effect of a pulley, an ideal pulley just changes the direction of a rope, but doesn't change its tension. So T1 and T2 are the same. So once I realize that, I can make this a little easier. I'll just call that T. Okay, so over here, I have T minus big Mg equals M times the acceleration 
of mass 2. And we call that A1 and A2. So I've got now two equations, and I've got three unknowns. I don't know T, I don't know A1, and I don't know A2. What do I know about the acceleration of this block and the acceleration of that block? Mm, it's not an inverse proportionality, but they're related. So this is a case where I'm not, I'm not directly told all the information. I have to sort of infer something from this. But what happens if this block goes down? What does this block do? It goes up. What if this block goes down really fast? What does this block do? goes up really fast, right? However fast this one is accelerating, this one has to have the same acceleration in the opposite direction, right? So I can say A1 equals minus A2. Okay, so First thing I have to be careful, the second equation has capital M's in it. I just corrected that. If you're copying this in your notes, make that correction. And A2 is equal to minus A1. So let me write this in terms of A1. Now I've got two equations and two unknowns. I can solve these. Um, first what I'll do, I'll find the tension from this first equation. I'll plug it into this and I'll solve for A1. And that will be my answer. That will be the acceleration of this system. Okay, so from this equation, I'm just going to bring mg over to the right side, and that will give me a value for the tension, ma1 plus mg. Now I will take this and plug it in to the second expression, and I'll write that down here. I'm interested in solving this for A1. So let me bring the terms with an A1 to the left. The terms without an A1, let me put on the right. So when I bring the terms with an A1 on them to the left, I get little ma1 plus big ma1. And on the right, I'm going to get big mg minus little mg. I can do a little bit of factoring, simplify this, and finally I'll solve for A1. So I have an expression for the acceleration of block 1. Let me check if it makes sense. First, let me check the units. Um, I have mass over mass, so these, those units will cancel out. And I have the acceleration has the units of g. Right? And g is an acceleration, so th that's consistent. Now let me check a couple cases where I know what to expect. What case did I mention I know what to expect? 
Well, there was a case I mentioned. I said, what happens if the two masses are the same? And what did we say would happen? It'd be an equilibrium, they just stay there. So let me say the masses are the same, then the numerator is zero and the acceleration is zero. So that matches what I expect. Uh, what do you think would happen if this mass were zero, meaning it wasn't there? It's just this mass. What does the mass do if you just suspend it in air? It falls, and what's its acceleration as it falls? Yeah, it's minus g. Okay, so let me set big M to zero. If big M is zero, then I get minus little m over plus little m. That's negative one times g. That tells me what I, what I expect. What happens if I set little m to zero? What happens to this system? Well, big M falls, yeah. So this would go, go shooting up with an acceleration of plus g. So let me do that. Let me set little m to zero. I get big M over little m, that's equal to one, times g. Okay, so in three different cases where I know what to expect, this answer tells me what I expect. Okay, so I'm confident in this expression. Okay, so you need to be able to do this problem. Okay, in order to do well in this course, you need to be able to do this problem. So you have a lot of chance to do very similar problems, like I mentioned in the homework and in the exams. But go ahead and star this in your notes. Make sure you can do this one on your own. The result is quoted for you there. So this is a problem where we could draw the free body diagram and, and the only forces were weight and tension and we've talked about those. Um, but there's a lot of cases where things are in contact with other objects and we have friction. Right, so let's talk a little bit about friction. It's a contact force. It only happens when you have things in contact. That's why we didn't have it in the last problem. Our objects weren't sliding across anything. Okay, so anytime you have contact between two objects, you would expect there to be friction. Unless you're told that the objects are frictionless, or one of the, one of the surfaces is ice or something like that, um, then you would assume that there'd be friction. Friction always opposes the direction of motion. Okay, so that means that I have this block on the table. Which direction does friction act? Well, right now the block isn't trying to move, so friction doesn't act. But if I start to push this forward, friction will push back. If I start to push this backwards, then friction pushes forward. It always opposes the motion. The strength of the frictional force, the maximum value that it can have, is proportional to the normal force. The normal force is how hard it's being pushed onto the table. Right, so if it's not being pushed onto the table, because it's not touching the table, the normal force is zero, the frictional force is zero. If I set it on the table lightly, there will be some small amount of friction that it can have. If I take some weights and put it on top of here, it's going to push harder on the table, and there will be more friction when I try to move it. And finally, it depends on the materials that are in contact, the two surfaces. I mentioned if one of the surfaces is made of ice, we'd expect there to be very little friction made of rubber, we might expect there to be a lot of friction. So it depends on the materials. Here's a picture of what's going on. Um, any surface has some roughness to it. You sort of zoom in and imagine there's this micro roughness. It might be too small for you to see, but you'd expect that on some level there's some, some 
some roughness. And as a result, when two surfaces are in contact, these little bumps can kind of settle into the little valleys. And because of that, um, it's hard to move one object across the other. So if the objects are just sitting there and they're stationary, um, there may not be any friction acting on this. If you don't try to push the block, it, friction doesn't have to push back. But once you start to push it, if I start to push this block this way, then all these little surfaces that have a normal component that's pointing backwards, as I push forwards, I'm pushing the block into those surfaces and they're going to push back, and that's friction. And so it's going to be hard to get this thing to start going, but once I get it to go, I kind of get the block to jump up and these little grooves and teeth to pass over each other. Once I get it going, it's going to be easier to keep it going than it was to get it going. Okay, so an object that's moving is going to have um, less friction on it than if it's stationary and I'm pushing on it as hard as I can. Okay, so we'll, we'll quantify all this in a minute. Explain the uh, equation. Okay, so first is the force of what we call static friction. Static means not moving. So an object that's not moving relative to whatever it's touching will have static friction acting on it. And the magnitude of that force, here I'm calling it F sub F, F sub S, the force of static friction, can be less than or equal to some maximum value. Okay, so the force of friction can be zero if the object's not trying to move. If there's no force pushing on it, then friction doesn't need to push back. But when a force pushes, friction push, pushes back, the strongest that force can be is given by this, this value on the right. Okay, so it can be any value between zero and this value. So this value right here is proportional to the normal force. I said that was one, one property of friction. And the constant of proportionality is this empirical quantity we call mu sub s. So that's the Greek letter mu. You can enter that in mastering physics, like slash mu. And that's a particular value that's found through experiment. It's not a theoretical value or one that you can calculate. It's one that you find from experiment, and it depends on the, the uh, materials that are in contact. So there will be different values of mu for all the different, different materials. Your book has a table of some common materials. So you can see, like, rubber on concrete, think tires on the road, have a high value of static friction. That's why tires are made of rubber. You want them to grip the road. You want a high value of static friction. Whereas other materials like uh, Teflon on Teflon have a very small coefficient of static friction. These are materials that are designed to be slippery. That's why your nonstick pan is made of Teflon. The materials slide off of it very easily. And typically, you can see this from the table, typical values of the coefficient of static friction are between 0 and 1. So this force of friction appears in a lot of problems. 
Um, a lot of times we have an object sitting on a surface. The surface might not be flat. And we have to draw a free body diagram. So let's look at a free body diagram for a block sitting on an inclined plane. We'll come across this in many variations throughout the semester. So here's our block. Um, gravity pulls it straight down. So we can write the force of gravity as mg, and it points it straight down. And because the block is tilted, we might, or the plane is tilted, we might want to talk about the forces that act along the surface and perpendicular to the surface. That might be a more natural coordinate system. So if this angle is theta, this angle is also theta between gravity and the perpendicular to the surface, gravity and the normal force. Okay, so this component right here is going to be mg cosine theta. There it is. So this component of the weight is mg cosine theta. This component is mg sine theta. What that means is gravity is pulling the object down, but because the surface is tilted, part of that force is actually causing the object to slide. It's not basically it's on a hill, so it's not being pulled straight down to the ground, it's being pulled down the hill in uh, sort of simple terms. So there's a component of gravity pulling the block down the plane, but we might expect, particularly if the incline is not very steep, that the object doesn't actually slide. Okay, if it doesn't slide, it's because there's friction opposing that. So friction is a contact force. It acts where there's a surface. So there's a surface right here, and it has to oppose the would-be motion. So if there were no friction, the block would slide to the right. There is friction, so it must oppose that and point to the left. And as theta gets bigger, so as the angle gets steeper, the force of gravity that pulls it down the, the incline gets stronger and stronger, so the force of friction will get stronger and stronger to keep it from moving. Until it can get no larger. And so there's a maximum value that the static friction can have. What happens when I, if I were to tilt this incline so far that the gravitational force pulling it down the incline is greater than the maximum possible frictional force holding it up. It'll slide. Right, so let's see where that happens. Okay, so right about here. Um, The end is about 50 centimeters off the table. Now, what happens if I take this block and instead of setting it on, say, this side, I set it on this side? There's less surface in contact. Right? So, what do you expect might happen? It might slide earlier because there's not as much friction. could fall over. I don't think, uh, well, I think this block might be stable enough that I can do this. Let's find out. Okay. Well, it did. It did a little bit of bull, right? 
and the end is about 50 centimeters off the table. What that shows is it doesn't matter how much area is in contact. The frictional force does not depend on the area in contact. Okay, one way you can understand that, consider this. Imagine I have a single block like this, right? And I do this experiment. I set the block on the board and I tip it and the whole thing slides, right? There's a certain amount of friction. Now let me s separate this into two blocks. Okay, I'd expect there'd be half as much friction on each block, right? Well, there is, but there's only half as much gravitational force pulling each block down. So it still is going to slide at the same point. Okay, and then if I take the two blocks and I stack them, I might expect there to be half as much friction because I've only got the surface area of one block. But what happens to the normal force when I have two of these? It's doubled, right? I've, I've now, the block weighs twice as much. The normal force is twice as much. The frictional force will be twice as much as what it would be with one block, which was half of what it was when I had these together. So that just shows that the two blocks side by side have the same frictional force if they're stacked on top of each other. Okay, the surface area is not, not relevant here. What does matter is the material. So these blocks are steel, maybe? I don't know what these blocks are. They're metal. Right? This one's wood. Um, they're going to slide at different angles. They're going to start to slide at different angles because the amount of friction that they can support is different. Um, so let's see. This one we know slides and the end gets to about 50 centimeters. Let's try it with one of the metal blocks. It's not that different. I just, I just picked two random materials. Let's put them side by side, see which one slides first. The metal block slid first. I should be able to find a, a height where the metal block will slide and the wooden one won't. My computer. Okay, so this is at a height where the component of gravity, the component of the weight pulling the metal block down the ramp was greater than the maximum static friction that could hold it up. But the wooden block has a larger coefficient of static friction. That means it can support a larger frictional force holding it up. And so um, the frictional force holding it up can still balance the component of gravity pulling it down. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, that all matters. That matters, and you can see. Uh, let me go back to the chart. You can see, for example, um, rubber on c wet concrete versus dry concrete matters. What, how it's polished matters. It's it's empirical, meaning it's it's a measured parameter. So all these things matter. How how smoothly it's polished. And such. What's that? Well, so its shape doesn't matter. It's micro, the microstructure on the surface would matter. So what you'd have to do is um, basically measure it. Right? If you have a particular material, you need to know precisely how strong the coefficient of static friction is. You need to characterize that material really well in either 
measure it yourself or find someone who's described the material in such a way that you know that what you're measuring is, is, is equivalent. Uh, we know that roads, when they're wet, are slippery. You can see that here. The coefficient of static friction is only about 30% on a wet road of what it is when it's dry. That means you can only accelerate about 30% as fast. It means you can only brake about 30%. So about 30% the value you can on a dry road. Okay, so once the blocks start moving, there's still friction acting on them. It's just that the friction's not strong enough to keep them stationary. And I said that once you get it going, it's a little easier to keep it going. So there's a different value for the frictional force that we call the force of kinetic friction that we have on a moving object. So when surfaces slide past each other, we say there's kinetic friction. Kinetic means moving. So we call it F sub K, the force of kinetic friction. And that's a constant. So the static friction is whatever it needs to be to keep the thing stationary up to a certain point. The kinetic friction is a constant. It will always equal the coefficient of kinetic friction times the normal force. So this is another one of those empirical numbers that's measured for particular materials. And this constant is always less than or equal to the same value of this, uh, or the the coefficient of static friction. So we can see that in a couple ways. First we can look at um, what the frictional force is as you push on an object and get it moving. So at first when you start to push on it, um, before you push on it there's no friction opposing the motion because there's no force trying to get it to move. And as you start to push on it, at first as you push harder and harder, friction just opposes that. So as you push harder and harder, friction keeps opposing that until it reaches some maximum. That maximum is the maximum force of static friction. And it can push no harder. So finally, the surface gives way and it starts to slide. And once it does that, it's moving. And so we use the force of kinetic friction. And that's always less than the maximum force of static friction. And so. As we push, no matter how hard we push, as long as it's moving, the force of, stat of kinetic friction will always be constant. And I say constant, if we actually were to measure it, there'd be slight variations as those little bumps and grooves sort of caught and slipped past each other. But the average value is a constant. Anara? What was the definition for the, for the, for the equation again? For this one? For, well, so we had two equations. The force is proportional to the normal force, the constant of proportionality that's called mu sub k, the coefficient of kinetic friction. The force of static friction has a similar expression. It's not an equation, though. It's an inequality. It's less than or equal to. And we just replace the k's with s's. Okay, so uh, kinetic friction has to be less than static friction, than the maximum value of static friction. If it weren't, think about what would happen. Let's say I tip this up just to the point where this object is about to slide. We say that once I tip it any further, the additional gravitational force pulling it down cannot be compensated by any more static friction. Static friction is at its maximum. Okay? So static friction can't hold it in place. But as soon as it starts to go, it's now kinetic. If the force of kinetic friction were greater than the force of static friction, now all of a sudden there's a greater force pushing it backwards and it would stop. 
Well, it's not, it's not kinetic friction then, it's static friction. So it's impossible. So if the force of kinetic friction were greater than static friction, it would never start to move. Okay, so the fact that things actually can be pushed and moved around means kinetic friction is less than or equal to that of static friction. So we can look at our table that's in the book. The coefficient of static friction for compared to the coefficient of kinetic friction. And for every case, the coefficient of kinetic friction is less than or equal to that of static friction. So here's an interesting one. Rubber on concrete, dry concrete, has a coefficient of static friction of 1, coefficient of kinetic friction of 0.8. Okay, so what that means is, you want a drag race, you're at the stoplight, you spin your tires to try to go. Or equivalently, if you want to stop really fast and you slam on your brakes so the tires skid, are your tires moving relative to the road surface? Let's take the example of you slam on your brakes, you lock your wheels, and they skid. Are your tires moving relative to the road surface? They are. They're sliding across it. So do we have kinetic friction or static friction? Kinetic friction. And the coefficient of kinetic friction is 0.8. If the tires are rolling, is the surface of the tire sliding across the surface of the ground, or is it just in, is it stationary relative to the ground? It's stationary. Point on the tire as it spins around, touches the ground, but it doesn't slide past it. And there we have static friction causing the car to stop. And that's 25% larger than the force of kinetic friction. Okay, so you can actually brake 25% faster if you don't push the pedal in all the way and lock your wheels. Right, so modern cars have analog brakes, so that's less of an issue. Okay, so we're talking about cars. Uh, friction's important when we talk about cars, because it's the force that causes cars to turn. Causes cars to go and causes cars to stop. You might think that the engine causes the car to go, and it does in a sense. But what does the engine do? It, it tries to spin the wheels. Right? And if the wheels are trying to spin, if there were no friction, what would happen? They just spin, right? Your engine would be really good at spinning the tires, and that wouldn't make the car go. If there's friction, the wheels push on the ground through static friction. What does the ground do to the wheels? Pushes back. That's Newton's third law. So as the wheels try to spin this way, the ground pushes the car that way, the car goes that way. Okay, it's actually friction that makes the car go. Likewise, it's friction that makes the car turn. And if you want to be able to go fast, stop fast, and turn fast, you want to be using tires that have the highest coefficient of static friction possible. It means you want a dry road, you want your tires to be made of rubber, basically, not Teflon, steel, any of those other materials. Okay, so let's do another example. This one's kind of fun. We did uh, a problem involving the Gravitron earlier. We'll do another problem. This is a carnival ride that spins around. You sit on the inside, or you sit up against the wall of this barrel, and at some point they remove the floor. So you're just balancing there. Okay, so let's say that this ride spins around once every four seconds, and the radius of this circle that it spins in is five meters. What's the mo minimum coefficient of friction necessary to keep you from sliding down the walls when they remove the floor? 
Okay, so a couple diagrams. We'll draw a side view and a top view. Okay, so we're going to be standing against the wall. Initially, there's going to be a floor, and at some point, that floor is going to be lowered. So top view has us right here. So we're talking about friction. That's a force. Forces means we want to use free body diagrams. So I've drawn one. I've drawn it from a couple different angles. Uh, what forces act on me when I'm spinning around? Mm, acceleration is not a force. You add up all the forces. That's the left side of Newton's second law. You set them equal to the mass times acceleration, which is the right side. Okay, so the forces are just going to be the left side. And they're things that come from physically, things pushing or pulling on us. So what's pulling on us? Okay, yeah. Gravity pulls down. Its magnitude is mg, where my mass is m. Any other forces? There's friction. Which direction does that act? Yeah, so if there's no floor holding me up, if there were no friction, I would slide down. If there is friction holding me up, then it must point up. And should that be static friction or kinetic friction? It should be static. If I'm not falling, I'm stationary relative to the, the wall. So it should be static friction. That can have a value that's less than or equal to mu sub s times the normal force. Therefore, there must be a normal force. Right? Which direction does the normal force point? Where is what object is providing the normal force? The wall is the thing that I'm touching. The wall is vertical, so it can push me horizontally. Is there something opposing that normal force? What's that? Well, that's not a force. Am I doing something? Well, I don't want to consider the wall as my object. Jeffrey, do you have any? Mm. So you may have heard of the term centrifugal force. Okay. If you have, forget about it. It's not a force. Okay. It's, it's something that is taught in high school physics to make things easier. And when we want to talk about things in detail, it just confuses us. Okay. There is no other force. There's nothing else pushing on me or pulling on me. What that means is the forces don't balance. You can see that there's a, a net force pushing me in. From the top view, that points in. Is that a problem? It means I'm not in equilibrium. If I add up the forces in x, or let me call it the forces in the radial direction. So I have a radial direction and I have a y direction. The forces in the radial direction, there's only one, and it's the normal force, and it points in. So in, drawn in as being positive. Okay, so I add up the forces, and I set them equal to mass times acceleration. Well, what is my acceleration when I'm spinning in a circle? Yeah, it's not zero. That's the key. It's not zero, so I don't need the forces to balance. I don't need to have another force balancing me. There has to be something pushing me in, otherwise I wouldn't go in a circle. Okay, so it's 
If you think about it that way, it shouldn't be surprising that the normal force is not. Um, the velocity we can figure out from the distance it travels in a given time. Okay? So the velocity is going to equal the perimeter of the circle divided by the period. The perimeter is 2 pi. I'll call t. And I have values. I could plug in 5 meters in 4 seconds. Okay? I'm not going to because then I just have to calculate numbers. And I don't really feel like calculating numbers right now. I'll do everything, and then at the end, I can plug in numbers. OK, so I can plug this value in for v up here. The normal force times 2 pi squared and r squared over t squared over r. And now one of the r's cancel. And I have an expression for the normal force. And that's going to be useful. If I go back to my problem solving method, it's going to be I drew the free body diagram. I added up all the forces in one direction and set them equal to mass times acceleration. Now I have to do the same thing in the other direction. And that's the direction where I have friction pointing up. The maximum value the friction can have is mu sub s times n. Can't be any larger than that. So I'm going to assume that it's at its maximum value. And what, that, what I'll do is I'll solve for how large the coefficient of friction needs to be. And then what I'll say is um, any coefficient larger than that is OK, because it just lets me have a, a smaller frictional force here. But it can't be any smaller than that. Okay, So the net force pointing up is, mu is friction minus gravity. And that has to equal mass times acceleration in y. Okay, So in the radial direction, there was some acceleration. It was not in equilibrium. In the vertical direction, there should be no acceleration. I don't want to fall down. So I want to set that equal to 0 and solve. The question was asking for the minimum coefficient of static friction. So I can solve. That's mg over n. And I can plug in my value. A couple things will happen that are kind of interesting. Masses will cancel out. Why is that important? If they didn't cancel out, then when you go on the ride, whether or not you fell down or not would depend on how massive you are. Right? And you don't want that to happen. You want everybody who goes on the ride to not fall down. Right? And in order for that to happen, it can't. the coefficient of static friction that's necessary shouldn't depend on the mass. And if I plug in the numbers that I'm given, I get about 0.79. Coefficient of friction is unitless. And what that tells me is, as long as the coefficient of friction between the wall and my clothes is less than 0.79, I'll be fine. Or it's greater than 0.79. If it's less than 0.79, the frictional force can't be large enough to balance my weight, and I will fall down. So it might be possible that if you wore like a jumpsuit or a tracksuit that was nylon, you might be able to get a slippery enough surface that you could actually slide. But they make the surface out of something pretty sticky. And they probably spin it a little faster. 
If it goes a little faster, the period is smaller. You can make that number smaller. That's why they wait until it spins up pretty fast. The period gets smaller and smaller. The necessary coefficient of static friction gets smaller and smaller. And when it's small enough, then they can lower the floor. OK, so that's it for today. That's all the time we have. Um, I have office hours now, so if you wanted to go over the test, I'm available now or uh, tomorrow from 4 to 6.